Welcome back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. I'm Peter Scherba, and today I'm very excited to be sitting down with Kenneth Ahn, who's the president of Haggerty Marketplace. Ken, very excited to have you on the podcast. I've been really looking forward to this one. Haggerty as an organization does so many things in the automotive world that that I follow as an automotive enthusiast. So getting to chat with what a career looks like leading up to being an impactful player in that space is very exciting to me. Uh, before we get into the meat of the topic, why don't you take us through your career journey leading up to today? Sure. Uh, well, Peter, first of all, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Uh, it's a great pleasure. As I sit here in Paris uh, at, uh, during this podcast, but uh, super excited. Today, I serve as president of Haggerty Marketplace, and we'll go into that in a little bit more detail. In terms of my career, coming out of college, I studied economics at Harvard as an undergrad and I started my career as in the management consulting industry at the Boston Consulting Group. At the time, I thought that that's uh, one of the ways to really get myself exposed to a large number of different types of businesses and industries and business topics and learn as quickly as possible. Um, after that, I went to uh, business school. I received my MBA from Harvard Business School and then uh, went into uh, investment banking on Wall Street at Goldman Sachs. You know, uh, some of my friends who might listen to this might chuckle when I went to business school. I said, hey, uh, I'm really looking forward to something entrepreneurial and nothing to do with PowerPoint yeah. presentations to clients. And uh, yet I find myself uh, on Wall Street. And the reason for that is two years at business school was a really good opportunity for me to do some soul searching and thinking about how I want to develop my career. And you know, long story short, as I was thinking about various different aspects of building and growing businesses, the whole idea of capital markets, how do you value a business, how do you... Yeah acquire a business or strategic, you know, uh, uh, deal structuring. That's one area that I felt that I really lacked. And, um, you know, rather than trying to rush into uh, a career that I ultimately wanted to, I wanted to go into an industry where I can further learn. And so that was uh, my decision that, that led to go to Goldman Sachs and spent seven years there in New York as an investment banker. And it was a, a tremendous experience. Um, you know, coming up on seven years, I had uh, two young kids. Um, I have yeah. uh, I'm married with two kids now, uh, ages uh, 13 and 10. Uh, but at the time, they were really young. And I uh, really kind of every year thought, boy, this is a really good, successful career for me. And I really enjoy this, but ultimately not where I want it to be. And in 2014, I made a, a, a very difficult decision to leave uh, the firm. Um and, you know, we'll come back to it a little bit, but, I, you know, um, from relationships that I built during Goldman Sachs, when I decided to leave and find something different, um, I left without a, a specific plan, which I think was what most people would think is pretty crazy, but I needed, <laughs> I needed some time off. And my goal at the time was to take half a year to a year off and really think about how I want to spend my time. Uh, I, I don't think that lasted very long. Um, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I was fortunate. Uh, a lot of the folks that I had developed relationships with at Goldman Sachs reached out. Uh, one of whom was um, uh, a gentleman by the name of Patrick McClyma, who was uh, the chief financial officer at Sotheby's at the time. And he reached out to me and said, you know, we can really use uh, uh, someone like you in, in, in a leadership team. 
Um, Sotheby's is an art auction house, and it was publicly traded at the time and um, was looking for a new strategy and ways to grow. And so I joined Sotheby's uh, uh, in 2014 uh, and led uh, strategy and corporate development efforts there. And then um, totally serendipitously, and you know, I guess I should say, while I was developing my career, I had this enormous passion for cars ever since I was... Yeah long as I can remember, probably five, six years old. Um, and, uh, you know, the, there was an opportunity to look at an, an acquisition or an investment opportunity that was in the car auction world and it opened up a whole new uh, world for me. I didn't know such world existed. Um, and first time where I thought my career and professional ambitions were intersecting with my true passion, which were cars. And so um, made an investment into a, a, a leading auction company and then a couple of years later, I ended up uh, becoming a president of a leading auction company called RM Sotheby's. Very um, cool. And I, I was I served as president for five years. And last year, I think the entrepreneurial bug, um, you know, was the biggest motivating factor, as well as you know, wanted to uh, start a different business, different kind of business. And that led me to found a company called, uh, along with my colleagues, a company called Broad Arrow Group. Um, so the company has been around for about a year now. Um, yeah. Right at the inception, um, you know, I had conversations with Nikhil Haggerty, the CEO of Haggerty, about a potential strategic investment. When you start a brand new company, um, you know, you, you need, you know, in my opinion, three things. You need people. Uh, first of all, you have to have a vision and a strategy, but to execute it, you need people, uh, you need capital, and you need the ability to reach the broader market as, as efficiently as possible. And we were very fortunate to have uh, a number of our founding partners and people who were interested in us who were uh, committing capital or, or interested in committing capital. So that box was checked pretty quickly, which is yeah. a very fortunate place to be. In terms of people, you know, a great group of people, with many of whom I worked with for years and trusted each other. And they had the shared vision and, and wanted to uh, embark on this venture. Uh, and then the last big piece was the reach. And you know, that was the biggest part that was difficult for me to figure out how to do as a startup. And, you know, naturally, one of the things I was thinking about is who could I strategically partner with? What companies right. that's got a great reputation that may or may not be in the industry today? And, you know, the, the first thing that popped into my mind was Haggerty. Um, for those listeners, you know, Haggerty is one of the biggest uh, collector car insurance company that started as an insurance company over the recent years, it's developed into more of an automotive lifestyle brand Yeah, with an incredible audience, uh, big media business, um, you know, events business in addition to insurance. And so my thought was, my gosh, that's a, that's a great place to potentially partner with. And, and so uh, that led to the initial uh, strategic investment by Haggerty. Um, as with most entrepreneurs, you think about building a business for a long time and uh, have great, you know, hopes and dreams. Um, and you always have to think about also, you know, what's the exit plan or is there a monetization plan? Yeah. And we certainly had that. Uh, but with Haggerty being a strategic investor, you know, in January of 22, um, everything, once we started working together and I became part of Haggerty's leadership team, it became super obvious uh, that the cultural fit as well as the strategic fit was there. And long story short, what I thought was going to be a, a three to five year partnership with the gradual uh, um, sort of 
growth and, and ultimate um, acquisition potential by Haggerty that got accelerated. Yeah. Uh, and so last August, so with you know eight months after the initial investment, Haggerty ended up acquiring the remaining stake in all of uh, the company called Broad Arrow. Yeah, so that's my career background. Um, you know, I touched upon a little bit about cars and my passion for cars. Um, yeah. I guess I have a little bit of a um, off the beaten path uh, background. I was born and raised in Seoul, Korea. And, you know, I, I loved cars since I was a little kid. And like I said, as, as long as I can remember. But, you know, unfortunately in Korea at the time, there were only a handful of, uh, you know, uh, make manufacturers and car models out there. And, you know, it, you know, it only took a few days to kind of memorize all the cars and the Hyundais and the Daewoo's at the time. That's right. Um, what really intrigued me were, you know, the foreign cars. Uh, whenever I see them, it was uh, it stood out on the streets. And, you know, I would try to ask my father, what, what's that car? Uh, what's That's a Ford, that's a Lincoln, that's a Volvo. And um, I think, you know, in a weird way, that's actually how I learn English. Um, oh, interesting. Pronunciation, you know, alphabet names, you know, my father, uh, it was a businessman and, and, um, every time he goes, uh, international travels, he'd bring back, you know, matchbox cars and, and, Very cool. you know, I would look at it and say, how do you, how do you pronounce this? And he says, Mercedes. I'm like, okay, that's, that's a Mercedes Benz. What's this? This one's easy. It says BMW. Um, and so I think in many ways I learned not only about cars and what's out there beyond, you know, this, the small country that I was, I was, you know, born and raised, but also, uh, you know, at a young age, familiarity with a lot of the names and the makes and models of the cars. And, um, we used to play these games where, you know, just at nights we would look at the taillights of a car, uh, from, you know, far away. And yeah. I would say, what's that car? And I would guess, and then he would, uh, Within speed limits, I like to think, uh, but uh, speed up and uh, go go behind that car and say, "Okay, well, you're right or well, you're wrong." And <laughs> one of my favorite favorite games to play every time I was in a car at night as a kid, because otherwise you'd be bored. But um, um, I also grew up in a, a, a environment at the time where, um, you know, at a young age, uh, my father had wanted to. After several business trips to the U.S. Um, he came back one day and told my mother that that's where I want to raise my family. Let's try to figure out a way to go to the U.S. And so I came to the U.S. at the age of seven. Um, and boy, that was a, a difficult, um, you know, transition. It didn't, other than some of the car names, I didn't really speak the language, um, <laughs> totally different culture. And I kind of got just dropped in right into the public school system, uh, you know, going through ESL and, assimilating to the culture yeah. and boy, it was a, it was a tremendous, I still remember, you know, the October of 84 when I went to a, a school in Seattle for the first time and, and that felt like, and I, I loved it. Uh, you know, the concept of playing organized sports, um, you know, the different classes, the diversity. And just when I felt like I was starting to get acclimated, my parents decided to to go back to Korea. Um, oh boy. My sister and I were heartbroken. This was 87, I guess. And, uh, I just, I, I couldn't, you know, it was just one of the saddest things in my life, uh, that I can recall as a childhood. And we went back to Korea and that was really difficult because at that age, you know, when you're completely immersed in a different culture and language, yeah. 
you totally forget, you know, the, the mother tongue. And I went back to Korea and kind of had the ESL version of Korean again, trying to catch up with everyone for um, missing about three years of that time period. And, you know, I think the, the thing that really struck out to me at the time was, you know, we use the term grass is greener on the other side. And as I was growing up in Korea, and it's a wonderful country, uh, but as it relates to education and, and the school system and what I was experiencing there. Right. Uh, ultimately went to, you know, all boys middle school, shaved heads, you know, uh, uniforms. And back in those days, you know, real corporal punishment. Um, you know, you really got hit by you know, teachers. And, you know, c- coming back from the U.S., I think, was very difficult in terms of reading, writing, and, you know, even history and a lot of the different subjects that, I was really lagging in, in school. Um, and, um, it was, it was a, it was a tough place, but I keep thinking, but man, just across the Pacific, I know there is a, a greener pasture. I know grass is greener on the other side. I've seen it with my own eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess, um, as I was going through the school system there, I really wanted to come back to the U S I really, really wanted to come back to the U S and, um, you know, my father was interesting. He, he, he passed away, um, in, uh, 2004, but, and I had a great uh, relationship with my father, but, um, at the time he said, you know, my son, you're, you're barely in the, you're, you're in the bottom quartile and on a good day, you're going to make it to the median. And you know, it was kind of a brutal school system where, um, every time you get, um, exams, you're ranked, you know, not percentile, right. not your A, B, and C. It's, it'll say your number's 47 out of 63 in your classroom and you're ranked, you know, 500 out of, you know, 800 students in your grade in the school. And so it was very clear where you sat Uh, and, you know, make matters worse. Every time you drop a rank, the teacher would hit you. (laughs) So you drop a rank from, you know, know, 50 to 60, then you're getting 10 hits. Um, I think there was a cap, but it, but it was, yeah. it was painful. And uh, it's not even the the pain of getting hit. It's actually the the pride and and you know part of your classroom, you know where you right. where you sit. Um, and so I was sort of in that bottom quartile to maybe bottom third. Um, you know, pretty much through elementary school when I got back, and then in middle school. Um, and you know, sometimes you know there are things that happen that you can't control, um, and sometimes you have to seize on those opportunities. And, you know, it's a defining, one of the defining moments of my, of my life as I look back was um, when I got to middle school in seventh grade, it was an all boys private school. And uh, the teachers sort of selected who the presidents were in the class and they did it. Interesting. So if you were placed first in your class, you're going to be the president. Second in your class, you're going to be the vice president, et cetera. And, for whatever reason, my, my seventh grade teacher, my homeroom teacher decided to line everybody up by height. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm six, four and, and changed today, but I was still one of the tallest kids. And in my classroom, I edged one guy by about one centimeter. And so we lined up and he said, okay, you're the president, you're the vice president, you're the treasurer. And, you know, it was, it was chaos because the, the guys who placed you know, number one, two, and three in their classrooms who should be officers were, uh, did not become officers. And then said, well, this is only temporary, but I want to try something different this year. And 
boy, the amount of pressure that I felt. Um, and, yeah. you know, I, I told my parents, I said, what am I going to do here? Um, I, I became the president, but I'm, you know, ranked 30 something in the classroom. And I'm going to be made fun of. And, you know, when we get to these president meetings on a weekly basis across seven classrooms, you know, I know I'm way below where all these guys were. And so, you know, I, I was really uh, stressed out. And at the time, my parents both said, well, for whatever reason, he gave you the opportunity. Don't let him down. Do everything you can. And long story short, I, I, I ended up becoming the president of that classroom. And, and because of certain level of expectations and the role that I had, even at that young age of seventh grade, I really feel like I can't let my teacher down. Yeah. I can't let my classmates down. How is the president of that classroom, you know, ranked a couple hundred in the, in the grade? Um, and uh, I started studying and I started getting better and better. Um, and a lot of, a lot of um, one of the big lessons in life is really about effort and how much time you spent, you know, and doing certain things, you know, the, That's right. the Malcolm Gladwell book and the blank talks about sort of the magic 20,000 hours to get to, you know, sort of a, a level that, you know, it's really, really good. And, and at the time my thought was, okay, I'm really behind a lot of the people here. Right. Um, what can I do? And the only thing I could think of was I just have to out right. and out study everybody. Um, not in a bad competitive way, but in a self-discipline way. You know, if I'm going to sleep at 10 o'clock at night, or if I go to sleep at midnight, you know, two hours extra every day, you know, that adds up to hundred plus hours, you know, uh, uh, you know, in a year. Um, now if I can get up at 4am and study two, three more hours before I go to school, now it's yeah. five hours a day. 35 hours a week or 1500 hours a year. And that's a real difference maker. And so, you know, I, I ended up just saying, Hey, mom, dad, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my best here. And, uh, you know, I'm going to bed late, but don't tell me that I need to go back early because I really need to use this time to catch up and I'm going to get up wow. super early and, yeah. and start doing this. So I did that all of seventh grade. And by the end of seventh grade, I was sort of in the top 10 in my class, despite all that effort. Um, um, and um, when I got to eighth grade, I thought, man, I really, really miss the U.S. I, you know, if I, if I apply the same principle and approach to academics, I think I can really excel there. And my dad at the time, again, I sat with my dad and said, you know, dad, I really made real progress here. Send me to the U.S., you know, I have an uncle that lives in Seattle. Let me live with my uncle. Um, let me go. Uh, I really want to do this. And he said, well, you're not even a big fish in a small pond yet. How are you going to go, you know, be a, any fish surviving in a, in a big pond? Um, it's not going to work for you. Um, yeah. I said, well, how can I, how can I prove to you that, that I'm ready to go? And, you know, in Korea at that age, you have nationalized exams and, everyone standardized exam, 13 subjects over two days and everyone takes those exams. And so, um, you know, my, my thought was that's my way out. If I can prove to him that I can do that exam and do well, uh, then that's my ticket out. And so, uh, I, in eighth grade, uh, studied, uh, incredibly hard to try to take that exam and do well. And, you know, I 
made a deal with my dad that, hey, if I'm top 10 in my class, you know, my, my class at my school, that would prove to you that, you know, I'm, I'm doing well here, that that's my ticket to the U.S. And he agreed. Um, and I'm sorry to go into so much of the personal background, and but there's some. No, no, I love that it. I've learned from this, but, uh, you know, back in, um, I guess it was October of, um, of 91, I took this exam and um, I couldn't wait for the results to come out. And, you know, I think it was around December, the results came out uh, and, I couldn't believe it when um, when the teacher actually announced that somebody here yeah. uh, did an incredible job, and you know, I for sure thought, "Gosh, it's that guy across the the, the, the aisle from me. It can't be me." Let's see what I did, and uh, he noticed that uh, I was number one in the school, and uh, wow. or not number seven in the country. Um, oh, wow! And so. You know, I, I ran home as fast as I can that night, I, that day, and I was actually crying. Um, and came home and banged on my door, and yeah, you know, f- showed this sheet to my mother and said, uh, I, "I get to go to the U.S." And so that was my uh, sort of upbringing and um, my my process, the process of growing. Right. Some of those things that I did at that time, I think, kind of helped me a lot in terms of thinking about career development as well. Um, you know, it's easy to just kind of think about cutting corners or, uh, Hey, I, I, I'm, I did what I did for the day. I, I'm, I'm good to go. So I can go and do something different and have fun. You could do that. My thought was at some point I can do that, um, right. you know, later in life. But right now there's always good timing in life that, that sort of windows of opportunities exist. And at some point yeah. those, and so let's try to maximize this. So when I was at BCG, you know, I, I was probably one of the first ones in and last ones out. Um, you know, I, I got called in for too many hours being put in the timesheet. So I ended up putting less time in the timesheet, but still beyond it. And then at Goldman, you know, I, I think as an associate, when I joined uh, after business school, yeah, there were times where, you know, you're under incredible time pressure. You're working on multiple deals. And sometimes you're just cranking away, pulling all-nighters to get something out the door. Um, and... Once, you know, so you have to get it done and get it right, but that doesn't mean you knew exactly what went into it. Sometimes, you know, you're using yeah. third party models or, or standard model templates. You're using, uh, other, uh, team members who've done similar work. Um, and so I would get all this stuff done and try to do well. Uh, but then afterwards I looked at myself and said, did I really understand all the things that went out the door? Um, uh, at 2 a.m. today for it to go to, you know, get printed and go to some uh, managing director's house by 6 a.m. for the flight. But now I'm sitting there at the, my desk at 1.30 saying, right. okay, I could just go to bed now or I could spend the next hour and a half right. trying to rebuild that from scratch on my own and see if I understand it. Because um, if I don't, over time, that will just compound. And if I do, over time, that would be compounding in a helpful way. And so... I would just put that extra mile in, um, you know, I, you know, if I think about the yeah. dollars per hour worked during those days, it probably would be pretty low, but, but it was uh, an investment that I wanted to make and it was incredibly, incredibly helpful. So went on a long monologue here, Peter, but that was sort of my background and philosophy in life, which is don't take shortcuts. Um, you know, the, the power of compounding, uh, doesn't lie. And, the more effort you put into something, the more you, you do it more than the next person. 
more likely that you're going to excel relative to your peers. And, and I think that was a really helpful uh, lesson for me. And the other lesson is, you know, whether that was that or there's countless other uh, opportunities or things that sort of came my way. Um, right. And, you know, recognizing that opportunity is important. But once you recognize it, what are you going to do about that opportunity and seize it? is a really important thing in terms of career management. I mean, I'm really glad that you shared a lot of that personal story because I think it is so, you know, critical to the understanding of kind of how your career was able to accelerate and be successful across, you know, some of the enormous named organizations that, that you've had the chance to, to hold pretty senior leadership roles in. And I think what resonates with me deeply, and there's a lot of things I want to jump around and ask about, but specifically this, you know, the work ethic that you described there is that I I think it is lost on a lot of people out there who might have lofty dreams around, you know, having a leadership role in an organization or starting their own company or being the best at something, whether that's sport, music and art or whatever the case is, is that you really need to understand the enormous amount of commitment, like top to bottom commitment, work and grind that it takes to, to elevate to like the top percentile of something, whether that's, you know, test results, right. At a national standard level, which, um, you know, I, I resonated with me as well. My, my upbringing, you know, was shaped by Polish parents who also had similar types of exams in their culture. And it would dictate the types of, you know, life you were allowed to have afterwards, right? It's like, are you going to go into labor? Are you going to go into like, you know, manual labor? Are you going to go into, you know, some sort of corporate role or science or whatever the case is? So, but, you know, this, your story and just how you carry through that mentality, I think is really important because you're right. Like you put in more effort, you do it the right way. You don't skip steps, right? And over time, that's going to translate into really deep and true expertise and then disproportionate overperformance, right? Relative to your peers. My question to you, right? Especially you mentioned you have family, uh, you ha- have passions like automotive and I'm sure other areas as well. I think we share a passion for watches also. <laughs> yep. How did you balance these things, right? As your life was starting to evolve outside of work? Uh, but you were also accelerating within work, knowing how much time and effort it took. Wh- where, where, and how did you find balance? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, and it's not an easy one. Um, yeah, you know, uh, I think the best analogy I can think of is playing speed chess, where you're playing with five, six different people going from one table to another. Right. You know, every move counts. Um, you want to play well in that in that setting, but every time you're with one chess table, you got to figure out what's going on there and make the right play. As soon as you're done, you got to move to the next one, and right. that's happening within the job and the career itself. But it also happens at home, and it happens with friends. And so, yeah, you know, I, I can't say, boy, I've really balanced my work and life, work lifestyle well. Um, it's subjective, and I think that you know. It, it, I don't know if that's a good, I don't even like the acronym or the, the, the expression of work-life balance. It's sort of right. balance, right? It's more, it's not work versus life, you know, life. It's your overall life balance. And I think I made a concerted effort to invest more time towards, you know, uh, career development and learning, especially when I was younger uh, right. in my marriage and also had really young kids who 
weren't really interacting much at the time they were in their diapers. And so, you know, uh, whether conscious or not, I think I spent significant amount of time trying to uh, gain my ground there and learn as much as I can. As families growing and kids are growing now, you need to spend a lot more time uh, interacting with them as well. And I think it's more quality over quantity. Um, I could spend six hours with my son, but just sitting next to him watching TV or or my daughter, or actually spending the 20 minutes drive in the morning when I drop off them at the school and having a really good engaging conversation. Right. And so, you know, I view each of those events and encounters, whether that's with my colleagues or my family, it's just, just an encounter with my family, but the opportunity of time I have uh, as, as sort of that, that chess, you know, analogy. And I try to do my, my, the best I can. There's only 24 hours in a day. And right. Oftentimes I feel like that's not enough. And, um, yeah, the other piece I did was, um, when push comes to shove, you know, sleep was the easy buffer. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so, you know, you just go to bed late. Um, you know, I think, uh, my wife actually is a physician and I think a lot of the, uh, the those in the healthcare might say, oh, that's really bad for you long term. I, I understand that, but I think, you know, on, on a sort of short-term basis, when something had to give, uh, I made a conscious decision that's going to be my sleep or anything that I don't think is so critical, like watching a, a you know, TV series or something like that, where yeah. I'd love to, you know, I, I would start these series with my wife and watch two episodes and gosh, Breaking Bad is so good or 24 yeah. is so good. And then I realized there's multiple seasons and multiple episodes. And I said, you know what, as much as I want to, I can't get into that trap. And so, I, you know, there's some sacrifices you have to make. I think that's, you stole some of the words that I've actually said out loud myself, straight out of my mouth. And, and you know, for me, sleep is also that same buffer of sacrifice, right? Whether it's, you know, trying to, and I always articulate this as like, you know, once my wife and kids are down and they're asleep and it's 10 PM onwards, that's like my second life starts at that point. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's, yep. And, um, I think it's really prioritizing the things that you need for your life balance. I like how you frame that. Um, you know, for me, it's, I play basketball twice a week for like two or three hours at a time that happens at like nine o'clock till like 11 or midnight. And that makes all the other nights that I spend that same window that like nine or 10 to like one or 2 AM on, you know, my nonprofit, this podcast or my, my, my job, right? Like yeah. it makes it much easier to, to grind through. And so that resonates with me deeply. And, and, and it is obviously a sacrifice that one needs to make in one area or another. Cause like you said, there's a finite amount of time. I am wondering though, because you know, there's, I, I, I feel like there's some similarity in your mindset and mine where, you know, I don't necessarily need a very clear North star in terms of, I want to be this title or I want to achieve this specific thing. I'm driven by simply striving for excellence. Like I just want to be the best at stuff, right? If I'm going to invest time in it and that's enough to push me, but I'm curious, did you have along your path across BCG, then Goldman, right? Um, you know, going to business school, was there an end goal that you were a specific one that you were working towards? Or was it simply like maximizing yourself, raising your floor and your ceiling as high as possible with the time that you had? That's a really good question, Peter. Um, you know, I think my philosophy is somewhere in between. So, um, you know, good companies have great vision, mission, strategy. Um, I think life is similar where your goals constantly change. Um, right. 
your your goals near to, you know near term goals, very foreseeable ones would be okay. But anything more than two three years out, I think, has a tendency to change, and life presents different opportunities or different challenges for you. But I think having a goal is really important. Um, but even beyond that, I think having a vision or direction where you want to head is really important. So. You know, think about, you know, I'm, I'm not a sailor, but using a, a sailing navigation, I think it's really it's sort of sailing analogy. Um, thinking about knowing whether you want to go north, east or south or west is really important. Um, otherwise, you know, there's only a finite number of years in your life and there's a finite number of days in your life. And you want to strive towards a direction that you want to head. And for me, that was uh, from a career perspective, running a business and being an entrepreneur. Um, yeah. You know, I came from a gener- generations of entrepreneurs. My great grandfather was an entrepreneur. My grandfather was one of the founding sort of uh, industry members for the optics optical business in Korea in terms of Very cool. eyeglasses and, and contacts. And my father was an uh, entrepreneur. He he took that business and continued to grow it, but he also got into a lot of different entrepreneurial ventures. And um, in many ways, I think I was influenced by that. But I also really like the challenge of it, um, you know, the creating, you know, we, we often sort of use the term a lot creating value, but you are really as an entrepreneur, um, creating a business that, um, generates real value for people, not just dollars and cents in terms of revenue and profits, but, you know, whether it's a service or product, it's something that people need or want. Yeah. And you're also creating jobs and you're creating something from nothing is what I really like about entrepreneurism. Right. Um, So I knew that that was my sort of long-term goal and that was my vision that helped me at least know that I'm going West instead of East. Yeah. That led me to think, okay, to get there, how do I sort of backtrack where I want to go? And what are the sort of stepping stones that got me to think about, you know, in college, I was very open-minded. I thought I was going to do pre-med, you know, but in high school, senior year, spring, I dissected a frog and couldn't eat meat for two months. <laughs> so, okay, that's probably not a good way to go. And I yeah. went into it with an open mind. But in in, high, in college, I think I decided that, you know, I want to go west. Um, yeah. In that case, for me, it was business. And then you start working backwards. Okay, how do I, how, what's the best way to get there? Um, and that got me to, you know, management consulting at BCG. That got me to business school. And then when I got to business school, business school wasn't my goal. Um but it was certainly a stepping stone that I was thinking about when I was at BCG. Right. When I got there, okay, what's my next move? Uh, and, 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 and that was investment banking. So, uh, you know, entrepreneurship, going back though, why I was so interested in it. Um, I never met my great grandfather, but he had a very successful business in Korea at the time of his, you know, it was post Japanese colonization and, uh, went really well. And, uh, uh, one day, the the whole business just went under, um, and um, he ended up uh, ending his own life. And I I heard that in my uh, sort of teenage days, and that was really shocking for me to hear that you know my grandfather right. had built this great business and then it failed, and and uh, he took his own life. And then my great you know great grandfather, I'm sorry, my grandfather, uh, you know, built a great business. But there were times where. You know, my, my understanding is that earlier on, it was really struggled with seven kids, my father being one of them. And then he really, you know, did well. And my father, I've, you know, saw much closely sort of the ups and downs of right. getting into new businesses and entrepreneurship. You know, there were times where we lived very comfortably. And then there are times where we moved into a, a two bedroom rental apartment, um, you know, and 
you know, the good thing was, I, you know, they always never, you know, we never felt growing up whether we were uh, in during hardship or 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 doing well. We just yeah. always had sort of a stable lifestyle. As I'm growing up, I realize how much effort that was needed for my parents to do that. But that whole idea of um, building businesses, creating new businesses, or taking over an alien business and turning around really appealed to me. And so that that was sort of the vision. And then my goals constantly changed, you know, even, even uh, take Broad Arrow, for example, you know, we, we launched it in, in September of 2021. And we sort of, or we formed the company, but we really launched it in December. And in January, I entered into this deal with Haggerty where my goal was yeah. this business and in five years, you know, we'll be, we'll be in one, one, one team. And, you know, eight months later that changed. So yeah. things change dynamically. It's very dynamic, right? Things change. And um, you just have to uh, be flexible uh, in my opinion, but every time you have a near term or, or long term goal, make sure that you give everything you have. And that's it. I think that's a really powerful sentiment, and, and especially this idea of you know being open to the the goals and vision changing, right? Like, because uh, like you said, engaging in that partnership discussion with a five year kind of roadmap and vision to have that in eight months we get accelerated to then trans converting in a, in a year's time, right? Is a, is a huge, huge departure from a vision. And yet here you are on the flip side of it in a very fruitful place, right? In an exciting position with, with Haggerty and what you guys are building yeah. together with marketplace. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think being open and um, adaptable in that sense, I think is a really powerful, powerful sentiment. Now, in, in terms of, you know, being able to then uh, go from Golden Sachs into Sotheby's and then from there, um, you know, having that leadership role in, in Sotheby's and running RM Sotheby's, right? Really build out kind of your network. Uh, you had your passion of automotive and, and cars overlapping with your work at that point. You had these relationships that you built from, you know, uh, from Golden Sachs and BCG that were able to really propel you forwards to uh, a relatively low risk, I, I guess, jump into the world of entrepreneurialism at that point, right? Like you, you essentially had built yourself this incredible support system and foundation where it was like a natural next step. And that feels like something you were consciously doing. Yeah. I think if you asked me in September of 21, as I was incorporating the business, whether it was a low risk venture, I, I probably differ. Right. <laughs> I think anything new, it might seem like it was low risk because I had sort of developed this career and path with, with, in, uh, with intent. Uh, but I think every move is risky and, and I, I like the challenge of that. There's nothing for certain. I do think um, by really trying hard to get to places that I thought was aspirational that could really help me prepare for the next move, uh, was, you know, really important. And when I got those opportunities, I really gave it my best shot. Um, you know, I have uh, had some setbacks along the way, which I think was really also equally helpful and humbling. Um, I think, you know, I joked about, you know, I wouldn't have thought it was a low risk venture is, you know, if you've only succeeded in your career or have done, you know, it almost sounds like, okay, this guy, immigrated and he went to Harvard and then, you know, prestigious consulting from business school, Goldman Sachs, like, you know, this guy, this guy had it easy. Um, you could see it that way from the outside world. But for me, I was 
the bottom rung in my class. And, you know, when I came to the U.S., it was, you know, incredible amount of effort to try to yeah. do that. And I was fortunate that I was able to do that. But then I had this new opportunity. Now I really wanted to capitalize on it. And in terms of coming to the U.S. and, you know, on my flight, out, you know, we had a back in those days, there weren't many direct flights. And so we had to go to Japan first to, to lay over. But my flight to Japan from Korea, I sat next to my mom and I was looking out in the window in the you know, clouds and just a lot of thoughts going through my mind. And I turned around to her uh, and said, mom, I'm going to go to Harvard. Thank you very much for sending me here. I'm not going to let you down. I want to go to Harvard. And yeah. to be honest, <laughs> I had no idea where Harvard ranked. I, I, it was, I've always heard the name as yeah. you know, some, one of the most prestigious universities and, and certainly in Korea, I'd heard the name a lot. And if you asked me where exactly it's located, I don't think I would have been able to tell it. <laughs> But that was sort of a goal and a promise to myself that, you know, I'm going to try to do this. So I got this new opportunity. And she actually told me at the time that said, you know, don't, it's okay if you don't end there, but right. everything you have. And if you give everything you have, you know, I think you, you have a good chance. And but that was really encouraging. She also said, if you really give everything you had and you didn't make it, that means there's nothing else you could have done. You've really given, you know, all of your efforts. And so, um, you know, coming here with the ESL and trying to catch up everything, I, I know anything from 80s pop culture to <laughs> yeah. social studies to, you know, a lot of the different subjects. Um, it was really difficult, but I had that sort of determination and I really worked hard through, through high school. And then I went to Harvard and then I thought, okay, well, what's the challenging next thing if I want to head west? And right. you know, I, I didn't. I got flat out rejected in some of the interviews. It, you know, there obviously it's a very humbling experience. Just the experience of going there for 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 high college. You know, in high school, you I did really well, obviously, to get there, and then you quickly realize that you know, out of sixteen hundred classmates, you know, right. you're just one of them, and every one of them excelled, and so you're quickly back in the mediocre um, right. sort of phase. And, and same thing with Goldman Sachs. When I started, there were 12 of us in the industrials group in New York. And if someone asked me day one, where would you rank yourself? I would actually rank myself, honestly, at 12. Um, <laughs> and, and I really, you know, worked hard to try to, to do well. And, we, you know, I unfortunately joined in 07. So we had to go through multiple layoffs in 08 or 09. In the beginning, when you, right. you know, my first business trip, I came back and two of my classmates were gone. And I thought, Oh boy. Well, I, yeah. Sigh of relief that I wasn't the last two, but also that I really need to excel. And so those types of setbacks, challenges, fears, I think healthy dose of it is good. And I actually had a startup that I started, started in 2001 and, and ran until 2003 with a group of uh, uh, young guys uh, in Philadelphia. And that was an uh, incredible experience and a very humbling experience for me. Very cool. But, we started this software engineering business. Um, you know, this is pre, no, this is 2001 to 2003. So, you know, nowhere near digital, you know, world that we live in today. Yeah. But, um, you know, we started the company and thought, boy, if uh, four of us, if we can, you know, generate 500,000 of revenue, um, you know, we could be really, um, you know, hiring a lot of people and living well. And, you know, at the time, you know, making similar to what you would make at Wall Street for right. as an analyst and have fun doing it. Uh, first year we did 1.8 million and wow. Oh my gosh, this is phenomenal. Um, 
and, and then you kind of have this bullish view and, you know, invincible that, you know, we can continue to grow and no problem hire everybody out of, you know, the UPenn engineering program yeah. you know, and, and really grew. And then we hit the wall. Um, right. And I really learned, you know, having a sense of hubris, um, balance sheet and cash flow management, having a sound strategy, um, all of that is really important. It was really painful. All these guys joined, you know, because of my pitching to them and starting their careers coming out of uh, undergrad. And then, you know, a year or two later, the company goes under. Um, that, that was a, a big dose of humble pie. And I think <laughs> for those reasons, you know, when you're, uh, when I started finally uh, another business, uh, last year, or I guess a year and a half ago now, um, it is always, always a healthy dose of, Hey, you know, I think this is going to work, but what are 15 things that could go wrong and what am right. I going to do about them? Yeah, that's so interesting how that type of experience, you know, coming full circle many years later, really shapes the foundational perspective with which you now once again go into such a venture with, right? And uh, I think it's, you know, you failing forwards, right? Or failing upwards and and learning and iterating. I think that's exactly what you're describing. And I think, you know, again, just in, in how you talked about, you know, pushing through uh, your, your high school experience and then obviously fighting through your um, your college experience and always striving to be a top kind of player in each of those circumstances. Even if you just extrapolate your effort in middle middle school, right? Going to sleep at midnight, waking up at 4 a.m. to get five extra hours a day, right? Extrapolated over years, applying that same mindset to high school, then college, then, you know, work life. It, you know, it, 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 I agree that it's sometimes easy to look at that linear progression and be like, oh, you know, had it made, right? But when you think about the thousands of hours that went into making that linear progression possible, you know, it's really not that simple. And, and so it, 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 it is something that folks just need to kind of understand and consider, right? Like when you're looking at and setting your goals or your vision, right? Am I ready for that sort of commitment? Am I ready for that sort of work ethic? And uh, I think it's a powerful thing for, for folks to understand. Now, um, in terms of uh, your your passion in automotive and how you just described you know at a very early age starting to notice cars. I have a very similar experience. I mean yeah. the Ferrari F fifty right before yeah. I could you know really understand anything about cars. I saw one. It was red. It was this beautifully designed thing. And then you know at the age of probably six or seven from there onwards, you know it was more or less an addiction. It was the Ferrari F four thirty. Then it was the Lamborghini Murcielago in in that orange or yellow or Lamborghini green. Right. And it just kept going from there. And then now with two young daughters, right. You know, before my kids could form sentences, they could say the words Ferrari or Porsche. Right. <laughs> and similarly to your experience, they've got a wall of hot wheels. Right. And I, every time I go into a Walmart or a target or whatever, I always pop my head down the aisle. It's like anything interesting or new here that I can just bring home. You know, right. my wife doesn't always love it because that means they get like a new toy like every couple of days, essentially. <laughs> but uh, I can't help it. So, you know, it, it resonates with me as you described kind of the way your dad helped foster that passion in yourself and then kind of how I'm doing it even with my own kids. Cause uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, that we're growing, they're growing up to now share with me as an interest, which I find very exciting, but I think everyone strives. I, sh I, I share that anecdote simply. Everyone strives to intersect passion with, with their life's work. Right. And, you know, once you started to have that intersection happen, 
was was that like a moment where you realized whatever my entrepreneurial ventures end up being, it's got to be in this space where this intersection is happening? Because I imagine it just makes it so much easier to work hard and commit when you actually love the space that you're doing it. Yeah, I think those are, you know, there's things you can control and things you can't control. Um, I never, you know, getting into the car industry was never my goal. I wasn't that specific, nor did I actually expect that to happen. Yeah. Serendipitously happen. But what I can control now is, you know, I, I know exactly where my passion is and what I can do and you don't want to let it go. Right. Yeah. And, and seize on that opportunity. You know, some, you know, it was, I feel like I was incredibly fortunate when I left my prior jobs. There's no, you know, I, no idea when I left Goldman Sachs that someday I was going to be in the collector car industry. Right. right. But, but yeah, I think in, from that perspective, I think it, I was incredibly fortunate. On the other hand, I also think that all those efforts and hours that I put in the past, even though I didn't know I was going to end up here, certainly when the opportunity came, allowed me to seize upon it. And so I feel like I'm in a very, um, you know, fortunate place. You know, wh- one thing that opened eyes really, you know, eyes to me was, you know, with, with Haggerty now, um, you know, and the company went public, um, in, in, uh, December of, uh, 21, um, you know, a lot of stats and uh, information is now being shared with investors in the public community, but, right. you, you know, I know there are a lot of car lovers, um, you know, varying degrees, but there's 500 million, you know, people out there in the world that would consider themselves as car enthusiasts and, you know, yeah. interested in cars and identify themselves as car people. And, you know, it just us alone, there's almost 70 million people. Right. Right. And, and when you think about cars, there's sort of the, you know, million plus millions of cars are being produced every year. Um, uh, not all of them are collectible. Some of them are just from commuting and going from point A to point B. Yeah. You know, but there, there are a lot of cars that are really for passion and for, you know, the scratch that itch of, you know, certain types of cars that you've always wanted as a kid that becomes available for sale. Uh, you know, whether it's an auction or classifieds or some other form, I still had, uh, you know, I remember I had a 944 turbo and a 959, uh, Porsche 959 poster when I came yeah. to the US in, in ninth grade on my walls. And, you know, just seeing those cars in real life and, you know, every time they come up for sale, you're like, oh my gosh, that's the, that's as closest to the one that I saw before. And, and there's yeah. a lot of uh, emotional, uh, you know, I, I like to think that there are cars and then there's cars. There's, yeah. there's cars that it's a utility. And then there's cars that really get your heart skipping, you know, and really have this emotional reaction. And and it seems like a lot of people um, have very similar reactions. And I love being a part of that. Um, You know, just diving into Haggerty a little bit, since I'm I'm with Haggerty now, and what the decision that I, you know, accelerated this partnership uh, so much was that the the business is really, you know, uh, unique in that it's a very niche market uh, of car collectors. And it started as an insurance company and insurance agency. And even today, when you think about that overall total addressable market uh, versus what Haggerty is insuring, it's only, we estimate it's only about 4% of the market share. So there's a tremendous amount of opportunity to grow. But, um, you know, people, obviously insurance is a big part of protecting your investments and, yeah. and your assets. And obviously in many states, it's uh, most states it's required, but, um, but, 
the 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 pivot from doing that to uh, a driver enthusiast enthusiast and collector oriented automotive lifestyle brand with a purpose. And when I read the the purpose of the company, I, I, was, I had a little bit of goosebumps because yeah. it said you know to 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 save driving and car culture for generations. And and you know um, that really struck me because. You know, I love the car culture and, you know, we talk about, you know, electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles and, and you know, young kids, you know, uh, how do you make sure that this car culture is continued to make, remain fun and, right. and kind of have all the enthusiasts share their passion and that carries on to the next generation. And, you know, um, as I thought about that, I said, gosh, the, the, being in the business of helping clients buying and selling cars in its, in and of itself is really fun too. And we can give, you know, really good advice and build great relationships, meet, you know, met tremendous, you know, people, you know, very successful in business. So, or just very enthusiastic with, you know, cars and just car lovers. I love the fact that I can go to fortune 50 type, you know, CEOs or retirees who are in the cars you know, we prep so hard to see them in a boardroom wearing suits and, you know, big books for yeah. consulting and banking days. But now I go to their house with, you know, jeans and, you know, they're in jeans and flip-flops and we're talking about cars in their garage, which is, yeah. you know, totally different experience. But I, I love that part because you learn so much about their background and careers and, you know, the story, but also you see what their passion for cars were and why they collected or why they, why they amassed the collection that they did, um, everyone has a different lens through which they look at cars. And I, I find that really interesting, but also now being in the center of that as, you know, marketplace and that, you know, broadly defined, but through auctions or private sales or otherwise that we can really help cars transfer from one owner to another. Yeah. From one generation to the next generation. Right. It's classic cars from, pre-war era to 60s and 70s cars they're only here today and people are you know enjoying those cars because they were able to transfer ownership safely and 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 continued on to next generation now you know I'm, i guess i'm gen x and you know it's interesting to see so many people of my age i'm you know 45 this year and so yeah. 40s really getting into what we call young timer cars so you know, Europeans, <laughs> sedans to race cars to, you know, Lamborghini Countach to yeah. cars from the eighties and, and early nineties, where those were sort of your, you know, childhood and teenage days that you grew right. up with the cars that you watch on TV and you want to record it and rewind it and watch it again on your VHS type, but you know, like the bad boys, right? 964 turbo. I, I think That's I watched right. that game, yeah, I don't know, a dozen times. Right. And, and, now it's really interesting to see sort of my generation of people that are really kind of getting into it as they become more financially stable and, and, you know, looking at those things that they always wanted as kids. Yeah. And, and, you know, as you talk about kind of the position that uh, Haggerty occupies in the automotive space in North America and, and, and globally, you know, as an enthusiast, I have a wall of automotive magazines right in front of me. Right. 
Uh, and my initial exposure years ago was seeing Haggerty inside of DuPont registry or in Motor Trend or Car and Driver. And it's just an insurance company. And then I started to hear as, for example, you know, automotive video journalists and podcasts started to really take shape. And you had some of these folks bubble to the surface like the, you know, Matt Ferris, Johnny Lieberman's, Chris Harris's on the heels of, of Top Gear. And then you start to hear them talk about Haggerty as, you know, their go-to for insuring their vehicles because Haggerty understood that a car's value is more than the Kelly Blue Book price, that there are things that even if it's, you know, a muscle car or whatever, that's not a multi-million dollar, you know, European collectible supercar, they still have more value than just the Kelly Blue Book, right? And so being able to have an insurance provider that understood that and then track insurance and that continued to evolve and then observing the evolution and that leap from that sort of car enthusiast focused insurance brand or, or, or provider to then, like you said, the lifestyle brand where you have some of the preeminent voices and folks who I've consumed literally thousands of hours of content, like <laughs> Jason Camisa, yep. who, you know, I will, I take to heart and will die on the hill of any basically verdict he gives of a vehicle. You have Henry Catchpole with a very different style, but again, like a legendary voice, right? Yep. And yep. now they're helping shape kind of your your video presence and the culture around uh, that you're trying to curate around it. Um, the events that you guys are part of now marketplace, it just all makes sense as this really wonderful ecosystem for car culture, but that delivers on real value, right? Whether it's in the form of entertainment, information, insurance, connection, et cetera. Um, it just makes absolute sense. Right. And and it's really exciting to observe and and honestly, very exciting to hear about the direction it's going. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, in many ways, I, I, I'm, I share that passion and I think I'm part of the team that's brewing the Kool-Aid as well. Not just, yeah. but, but, you know, I, I think you're totally right. It, it, I guess the simplest thing to say is, does anyone want to talk about their car insurance with anybody else? Well, no <laughs> yeah. Um, insurance is when you first buy your car and you want to insure it to protect it. And you don't really talk to an insurance agent unless there's a renewal or you want to add or drop a car policy and, uh, or if you get into an accident, right? Yeah. And, but also insurance is a business that I think this is where, um, I think we're differentiated is insurance is an industry that I think is the, the key success factor ultimately is trust because right. you think about what the business model is. You're selling a piece of paper that says, I promise you that if something happens that up to this amount that we mutually agree on, no questions asked, I will protect it for you. Right. So yeah. it's, a, it's a intangible promise that you're selling someone that if something happens over the next 12 months, I got your back. Yeah. And, and that takes years to build that level of trust and confidence. And, you, you know, as much as we talk about insurance, we, you know, the, the claim side of the business and how we treat the customers, you know, and when you get into an accident or someone hits you or, you know, something happens to your car and it's your pride and joy and passion that you insured for, it's a very emotionally difficult oh, yeah. sort of time period. And so... You know, Haggerty, I think, has done a great job of understanding car people and really trying to help and, and provide excellent service. Coming from that, I think it's almost organic because, you know, shocking if you listen to some of the, you know, sort of for training purposes, the, some of the conversations 
between our insured members and, and our, our colleagues in the, in the call center, a lot of people call and they just spend minutes and minutes talking about their car and their background, why they bought it. You know, it's not just about, hey, my car is worth X and I paid X, so what's my yeah. quote? It's the story behind it. And they love talking about cars. And, and our team is really good about understanding their needs and talking. We talk cars too. And, and yeah. that created this sort of a community that I think naturally grew to, um, you know, now what you're saying, you know, in terms of media, entertainment, a lot of things that people love hearing about. They love participating. They want to look at the values of how we're thinking about the, the cars and the, the, with their automotive intelligence team. And so it's sort of, you know, continue to sort of organically grow. And yeah. now we're trying to create something that is, you know, by the way, you know, everyone has a choice in terms of who they want to insure their cars with or what events to go to or who they want to sell or buy cars with. And so I think competition is always good, but how do we create an excellent service that's based on trust that really wants people to continue to yeah. you know, engage and work with us and, and consumer, you know, really look at, you know, like you said, Jason, can those drag races, man, there's, there's, you know, it's amazing. And, Incredible. And, and you learn a lot about those cars too, right? And yeah. you know the relative performance of those cars. And so, you know, we're not, this doesn't generate any revenues. That's not creating somebody to buy an insurance, but it's a, it's a very good community and engagement to really, you know, going back to that purpose of, you know, saving car culture. We're, we're, I think we're you know, trying to create this ecosystem that allows people to engage with us in various different ways and really enjoy the hobby. Of course. And I think what's really important about that, you know, is, you know, as somebody who, you know, I once had an older sports car, BMW, and then family took over, had to prioritize things. And I'm now to your, you described this kind of uh, the younger generation finding the financial security to be able to engage uh, meaningfully in the uh, in car enthusiasm again. And I'm on the verge of, you know, buying a sports car again. And when I think about like, who's the type of person or organization that I would want to be insuring my car with? It's the one that exactly as you described, respects and honors like my love for it. And the reality is, is that outside of those 500 million people who, who identify as car enthusiasts, the rest of the world largely doesn't understand right? Mm -hmm. This emotional experience with a vehicle, you know, even my wife who respects and appreciates my enthusiasm for cars when she hears me watching YouTube videos and some of just like the descriptors used about a car experience, she's just like, what's happening in these videos? It's almost <laughs> like a romantic like description of a relationship with a vehicle and people outside of the enthusiasm just don't understand. But having that in the, in your insurance provider, that creates a meaningful value exchange. And it's really interesting as we go into this world of digital transformation and cookie-less future, it's changing how companies do digital marketing and first-party data acquisition is so important. And to do it, meaningful customer value exchange to build a relationship to, to get that first-party data is so powerful. And the exchange and the value that you guys are providing is is real, right? I think it's an example to be observed in terms of the non-tangible things around car enthusiasm and that world that translates to a meaningful value exchange in, in a transaction like something over car insurance. I think it's a really powerful learning. Um, and to me, why I think Haggerty is such an exciting organization in the automotive industry. Uh, in terms of, you know, just kind of as a, as a closing area to, to discuss, what is your kind of vision now 
with Haggerty Marketplace and kind of this culture and, and ecosystem that's been built at Haggerty, what are you what are you striving towards with this with this venture at this point? Yeah, it's a good question, and I'll speak on Marketplace as I'm leading that new effort. Um, you know, we launched that effort with the partnership with Bardo back in January, so it's only about a year old now. Yeah, uh, but you know, in the near term, it's it's a brand new business within you know, the, the larger organization. And so internally, it's how do we make sure that we not only great build, build a great business, but have this business be really a great experience with, for the broader, you know, client base, whether that's linking it with their garage and social, uh, you know, facilities right. or with media or, you know, with insured clients, you know, how do we make sure that we don't, you know, sometimes we don't know whether someone's insured with us or not, but they expect right. to know that they're our customers and, and expect a similar level of engagement. And so a lot of there's internal um, growth that we're, you know, focused on right now in terms of making sure that, um, you know, we, we call it, you know, flywheel internally, but in terms of uh, making sure that we're, we're bringing the house as, as and bringing the firm as it relates to really, really good value proposition for our clients. Um, externally, you know, I think, um, you know, without divulging all the, all the, all this, you know, the sort of strategy, I guess I'll, I'll say this. Um, when I founded the company, it was clear to me that the world didn't need just another auction house or another right. auction platform. Um, there's already plenty of them. And some people asked even yet another one, is there room for it? I think, but I believed that the world needed a different kind of auction house and a different right. kind of platform. And what I mean by that is one that is differentiated, truly differentiated by trust and by, uh, you know, you, you touched upon this and then, you know, when I think about insuring my car, you know, the, the reputation, um, the trust factor uh, that that has led to a lot of customers coming to us. And, yeah. and marketplace is a uh, potentially uh, you know difficult and daunting um, you know venture and experience for a lot of people. You know, buying and selling cars sight unseen online. Yeah, or sitting in an auction room and bidding and raising your hand up. You know, oftentimes after an auction, it car ends, I walk up to a client and, and shake his or her hand and say, thank you very much for bidding with us. And yeah. when you grab their hand, it is sweaty, shaking, you know, it's <laughs> an adrenaline rushing experience. And, and um, it's not one or two people. It's, it's, it's a very sort of difficult uh, process. It's challenging and it's good, but it gets your adrenaline going. And, and you know, oftentimes... Um, you know, they don't know who they're dealing with or, or yeah. what the practices are, what's happening in the room and what kind of bids were real or not. Or, you know, it's a very kind of difficult process. And so we, we're trying to change that quite a bit with respect to sort of older practices and how some of the you know businesses have run in the past. And we think there's a, a way to really differentiate uh, both on the live auction side of things, but also on the online where we can improve on the trust factor. You know, yeah. like, I, I told my team, it's like wearing seatbelts. Um, you know, nowadays, you know, you get in a car and most of us just automatically put on a seatbelt, but you right. look at these cars that were built, you know, prior to, you know, in the pre-war or 50s, 60s, there's no seatbelt. And if there is, it's a two point, you know, seat right. belt. and, you know, when you think about it for, for anyone that's driving, you know, the chances of, 
you or me getting into an accident. I'm not an actuary, but it's not a it's not a 90% probability you or I would get in an accident over the next 12 months. It's probably more somewhere low single digits or a fraction of a percent, right, for an individual. Yeah. Uh, but the awareness of what happens when things go bad, when you get into that accident, was not there in the past. And it's, oh, you're not going to get into an accident. What are the chances? But when it happens, it's pretty severe. Yeah. And I think it's very similar to the marketplace. And I had personal experience uh, bidding on a car online at a, diff- you know, at, at a different platform. Uh, and it was not one. It was not two, but actually three different cars were. And one was a one where the... the I had already wired the funds and the person actually Googled my name and found out who I was and what I, who I worked with. And he happened to know some of the colleagues. Yeah. He immediately then came clean and wired my money back. But there, there's situations where those things could happen and it's wow. really bad for you. And so, you know, it doesn't happen a lot, but it happens. And so our thought is how do we make sure that we, have the seatbelt for people and, and, and create a safe environment, yeah. and a trusted environment. That's, that's what we're focused on. And you'll see more and more of that come through over the coming quarters and, and you know, months and quarters and years. But that's our, our big differentiated strategy. I absolutely love that. I, I, you couldn't have articulated a clearer vision and one that is a greater differentiator in this space. So I'm very excited to see that to come to life. And, you know, I think it's a really uh, cool spot to, to kind of leave the conversation off on. But uh, Ken, this has been incredibly a, a rich conversation. I really appreciate you coming and jumping on the podcast, sharing your story, sharing kind of your career journey. I think there's an enormous amount for folks to learn from across a lot of different fronts. And I honestly look forward to having a conversation with you again and just seeing how Haggerty Marketplace has evolved and how you guys continue to impact car culture, something that's very near and dear to my heart, if it's not evident already on this call. So thank you again. I really appreciated the time. Thank you, Peter. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you very much. 